Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first, all of us discusses black history and black people being seen as living outside of the human experience. Then, we hear about Mary Gella, the last film in this year's Americana, Africana film series at the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Later on, we have another discussion around creative placemaking with Barrio Alegria. After that, Brea talks with a Johanna Batman about the four-session reading group on land, liberty, and loss at the Shaker Heritage Society. Finally, we go into our archives and bring you a piece from yours truly, who talked with football coach at Choi High, Matthew Marsh, about senior athletes and being a teacher slash coach. But first, here are the headlines. On Friday afternoon... The judge in the New York City case against Donald Trump found the former president guilty of conspiring to misrepresent his net worth and ordered him to pay a penalty of $355 million. The decision also bars Trump from serving in top roles in any business in New York State, including his own organization. It also bans his two sons from serving in a business for two years and penalized each of the sons with $4 million fines. The Trumps are expected to appeal. On Friday, the College of St. Rose notified the state that 600, 646 employees will lose their job when the school closes. The terminations will start on May 16th in stages throughout the end of the year as staff wraps up operation. The Troy Public Library's insurance company has, de- has denied the claims for the water damage to the Lansingburg branch. Paul Hauck, the library director, said that he will appeal the denial while also exploring their other possible sources of revenue to pay for repairs. The Times Union reports that New York's Department of Criminal Justice Services has rejected applications from organizations in Schenectady to start an anti-violence and street outreach program called called SNUG. The article mentions that Trinity, the article mentions that, quote, Trinity Alliance, which operates SNUG in Albany and Troy, failed to get the necessary backing of the local law enforcement agencies in Schenectady. For uh, Governor Hochul's proposed budget includes the transfer of $100 million from the Fund for Legal Aid, which provides legal help for low-income New Yorkers to the general fund. However, that proposal has been dropped following protests by attorneys, law firms, and social social service agencies. Colony police have reported dozens of burglaries in the last three years targeted at Asian business owners. The Times Union notes that the media outlets nationwide have reported a similar trend in crimes. In Troy, Mayor Camilla Mantello has named Dylan Spring as the city's next comptroller. That position oversees all financial reporting and accounting for the city, including managing the city's $105 million budget. For the Rensselaer County Legislature, Minority Leader Cindy Doran registered f- resigned from her from her post 
from her post representing Choice District 1 because she will be retiring and moving to Saratoga County. A new map of congressional districts in New York State, approved by the Independent Redistricting Commission on February 15th, could give Democrats one additional seat if approved by the state legislature. And that's it for headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you could contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. In the latest installment in their Black History Month discussion series, Sean Young and Jamaica Miles, founders of the Schenectady civil rights group All of Us, speaks with Arthur Butler, executive director of the Human Rights Commission of Schenectady County. Mr. Butler begins by discussing James Baldwin's writing about the idea of black people being seen as living outside of the human experience. We're still fighting to be a part of the narrative of the story, not something that is just interjected at people's whims, but we're we're as much part of the uh, American experience, the American fabric. We, We are part of it all, but yet we constantly are left out of the narrative. And so that- Why is that? Well, come on, it's, a, it, it's, it's power. It's power, it's economics, oh. it's, it's power. It's what made Dr. King dangerous because they started yeah. to talk about a poor person's movement. Yeah. They started to talk about economics. They started to talk about having a share and what should be rightfully ours. Yeah. So that makes them dangerous. Yeah. Europeans left the rule of kings and queens because they felt that they were being left out of the power structure and left out of the dream. So they came here mm-hmm. only to do the same thing. Only to do the same thing to others because as uh, my partner Jamaica Miles always says, it's, it's for, so for too many people, it's not about ending um, oppression. It's about getting your turn to be the oppressor. Yeah. I want to get into this idea of unity and, and humanity so tell me what it is in the context of your work with the human rights commission how are you addressing the, the imbalances that you see i mean it wouldn't be, be a need for a human rights commission if there wasn't violations of human rights i imagine right yeah so so the work and how i operate within the parameters that have been given to me um, is to bring that history. So to bring my upbringing, the youngest kid uh, in a large family, learning to build coalitions, learning to work together, learning how to get your voice heard. Within a governmental structure that I'm in or governed under, I have to figure out um, how to coalesce. So what I do is I look at the things that we have in common, yeah. even if the other person don't doesn't want to see it, we still have something in common. My mom used to say, who's my greatest teacher, that um, you know, if you cut me, I bleed. I'm human. I have emotions. I hurt. I you know, I I have joy. Um, don't take away those human attributes or those human emotions away from me and make me into something non-human. 
Mm -hmm. Right. So what I do at the human rights is I make sure that black history is, is 365 days um, yeah. that I am in a place where I can be heard and seen. So what does that look like day to day? So say Sean's got an issue or concern and something's going on and 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 I feel like, you know, my rights have been violated in some way. And what does that look like for them just to be able to reach out, contact you all and get the assistance that they need. It's having the passion, but it's also having the compassion mm -hmm. to be able to listen. So even if someone comes to my office and they don't meet the criteria of an offense under a protected class, I still take time to listen to the whole story. I take time to listen to them and then utilize the resources that I have. Yeah to connect them with somebody who can do something for them. But it's important that they be heard. It's important that people who come in that office who feel like they are not being heard or that their rights have been violated or that they've been shut down or that they've been fired unfairly, um, it's important to have somebody sit long enough to listen. And so I had to rethink my listening skills. And you're estimation, when you look at the things that we're facing, the obstacles in our way, what are some solutions? Like, what are some things as a community we could be doing to take some strides forward? So in all of the trainings that I do um, in my in my business life, I learned how to do what's called a SWOT, S-W-O-T, to look at the strengths, look at the weaknesses, the opportunities, and the threats. And so in the work that I do, whether it's in a training, I'm always evaluating where the strengths are, where the weaknesses are, what are my opportunities, what are our opportunities? So I think, and what are the threats? And I think that if I was to do a, a quick analysis on what you were just on, on the question, yeah. um, we sometimes get in our own way. We don't take the opportunity. Um, um, Professor uh, Bell, uh, Derek Bell, um, I remember uh, working at the, uh, a non-for-profit and I bought a used car and the used car was a Mercedes. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, nice yeah, it was a used car, right? <laughs> and, and, and Professor Bell said to me when he saw it, he says, oh, very nice car. He said, very nice. He said, I'm wondering how the people you serve view the car and how that connects you to them or how that takes you away from them. Interesting. You know? Yeah. Um, and so these, those are role models yeah. who put everything on the line. We, so one of the things we have to do to move the needle forward is to make sure that we're, we're willing, I'm willing to put on the line my comfort. So in order to become comfortable, I'm gonna have to face some discomfort. Yeah. So I put that on the line. Um, we have to realize what our strengths are. And our strengths, my strengths, come from a powerhouse, um, jam-packed um, room full of women. Mm -hmm. My mother, my godmother, my coach, um, friends, you know, who really, who I got to see in action um, how to face adversity, how to create something out of nothing. Mm -hmm. And um, and to make it look pretty, even when it was at its ugliest, how to make it look 
pretty for us to continue to do it and then to keep on doing it. So, you know, I think that moving the needle forward is to get out of our own way, put our comfort on the line um, and utilize our resources to move us forward. And, the, and if I say us, that means I'm including myself. Yeah. Yeah. Not I'm just going to get this for myself and I'm going to be comfortable and I'm going to live this kind of life and y'all have to do it for yourself. No. When we're talking about the humanity of Blackness, how do we begin to love on ourselves and on one another um, and to also find those those moments of, of unity that y'all talked about with, with Baldwin and with the Black Panther Party, but because of the trauma and because of the intentionality of white supremacy, our humanity has always been challenged. So how do we continue and look for that love for ourselves and for each other? We remember, I remember. I remember the stories. I may paint a picture based on the, the, the pastels, the beauty, uh, of what I learned through those who taught me. But I also know about the the dark sides, the ugly sides. And I make that, it's all part of the story. And it's a reminder for me not to turn around. Watching people get spit on, remembering the people who were hosed with fire hoses and had dogs sicked on them. And they kept on going. And so... Healing to me is about embracing the journey that I have been placed here to bear witness to, and then encourage through my experience that it's not always gonna be easy, right? Here's my grandmama talking now, right? But I really don't believe that I was brought to this place to be left here alone. And so I have to encourage myself to get up when I when I get knocked down, to take a no and make it into a yes and um, present the case and know my rights and all those things that mom taught me. And then to um, get help on how to articulate that in other circles so that I'm effective in every room that I walk into. Lastly, I'll just say that, you know, my favorite orator was, uh, Barbara Jordan, I loved when Barbara Jordan would speak. And I listened to old tapes of her at the Democratic Convention and other um, speeches that she gave. I, you know, I go and I listen to those, those speeches and I hear the passion and I can relate to the passion. I also can relate to the hurt that created the words, but they also had a vision for a better place. And I, I have a vision for a better place, a better world, a better me. That recording from the All of Us uh, series around Black History Month was edited by Moses Nagel. And Moses has been bringing us these uh, editings from the series from the All of Us in Saratoga um, discussions. Mary Keller, a film about... Brazilian revolutionary Carlos Mariella is being shown as part of the Africana film series at the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Services. Bria Barthel talks with Professor Kevin Hickey, who coordinated the film series, about the, about the film, the, ser the series as a whole, 
and how the word Africana includes Africa and the people of its diaspora. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm delighted to be speaking once again with Professor Kevin Hickey. He's the one who is organizing the wonderful Africana film series at Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Professor Hickey, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hi, Bria. Many thanks. Happy to be back. Now, as frequent listeners will know, you do an annual set of three Africana films each January, February, and you've already had two this year. The third one is coming up on this coming Tuesday, February 20th at 7 p.m., but it's not set in Africa. What's going on? Uh, yes, well, the, the series is called an Africana film series, and this is year 19, and so when you add A to the end of African, it includes people of African heritage, ancestry, uh, anywhere in the world. And so one year we had Africans in Europe. One year we had Africans in the Caribbean. As a, that wasn't like the specific theme, but anyway, that was the location of all three films. Uh, one year it was... Um, I forget what it was exactly, but one of the films was Africans in Brooklyn, uh, Mother of George, which is a which is a great film. And uh, so this year we have two in Africa, the, the two we've already seen uh, two weeks ago, or actually it was last week, we saw um, a film that takes place in Mali. And a few days ago on Tuesday, we saw a film taking place in Tunisia. And then, as you already mentioned, on the 20th of February, we will see a film called Marighella, which is about a famous individual in Brazil of African-Italian ancestry, heritage. Um, his grandparents were slaves and they came out of uh, the Hausa region of Northern Nigeria or Southern Niger. So he was famous because he was a writer. He, he wrote a famous book on how to be a revolutionary. He wrote poetry. He was a professor. He was a an uh, activist. He was also a congressman for a few years. Uh, he was um, arrested maybe six times. One time he was five years in, in jail, in prison. And uh, the film that we are looking at Tuesday on the 20th of February, looks at Marighella and other individuals. So it's not, not just about him, but it's about the, the group of individuals with whom he worked and he was the leader of uh, responding to the, uh, the military coup of Brazil in 1964, which led to a 21-year military dictatorship. And not surprisingly, this coup was supported by the United States and then the military dictatorship was supported by the United States. So there are a few uh, American figures in the film. It's not a documentary, so it doesn't get into the, into the, shall we say, nuances of uh, Marighella as an individual. It's more of a heart-thumping action film with lots of tension as we see uh, Marighella and his half dozen or so nearest uh, partners and then also some family members who are not partners but who are 
who are unavoidably part of the larger conflict. And uh, so it's a very engaging film um, by um, a, a, a famous uh, actor and musician um, from Brazil. So it's got some interesting uh, actors and it references a number of 20th century um, freedom fighters, we could say. Uh, the, the Mexican uh, Zapata, uh, a less well-known man from Nicaragua called Sandino, and uh, also the Black Panthers. So it is an engaging film uh, with the uh, actor uh, Seu George who is the uh, musician and actor who plays uh, Marighella in the film. Now, you said the coup was in 1964 and the dictatorship went until 85. What is the time period covered in this film? And do they use documentary footage from the time? Well, they use some some um, some footage uh, in the opening, I don't re I don't remember anything other than the opening. So the opening two minutes or so, uh, we see actual footage from uh, right after the coup, and then the rest of the film is is a is a feature film. And the time is sixty four to the uh, I guess it's not much of a spoiler here to the uh, the death of uh, uh, Marighella in. Uh, uh, 69. I think it was November of 1969. Oh, so he didn't live to see the overthrow of the dictatorship. How sad. Yes, yes. Um, it is unfortunate. And uh, this is, of course, just one of many unfortunate incidences. I've come to the past two films. I've come to series in in the past, uh, especially the, the ones where you were doing dance and music and those were set in a couple of those were set in South America. One of the things I love about going to the Sears, well, there's two things. One is the handout and one is the discussion. So tell us about those. All right. Well, um, about seven o'clock, one thing you didn't mention is uh, uh, pizzas arrive, fresh, hot out of the oven pizzas and also drink. And uh, already for people to take is a one, two, three, four, five, six page handout. Uh, two of the pages are give the history of all previous films and the theme of each year. And um, so I give a, a create and, and provide a handout, which provides a little bit of historical background, the names of some of the main characters, and just my own take on on uh, what I see going on in the film in a larger global context. And then after the film, we have approximately 20 minutes for discussion. And there's usually between 40 and 60 people in attendance. And quite a few of those individuals are from off campus who are uh, working or retired, who have uh, background and knowledge about many parts of the world. And so we have a very good discussion afterwards, which includes people noticing things that that I didn't notice. And so that is a really, I guess we could say the community part of the event. Of course, there's community in just getting together for food and drink and uh, non-alcoholic for uh, watching a film. But then th that conversation afterwards is is so vital 
philosophically speaking, for democracy and um, and viable, healthy uh, societies, that public space. So uh, thanks for bringing that up. And this um, continues. The th this year's theme is independence and justice, Africa and its diaspora. Again, the film is Marigella, M-A-R-I-G-H-E-L-L-A, -L -L -A, a 2019 film. It's showing on February 20th at 7 p.m. And where do people go to see it? Well, it is the Student Center, also called the Gazo Center. Uh, if you just come to Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences and basically follow the signs to where you park, it will be right there. But if you uh, have any questions, you can, of course, ask a student who happens to be outside on the campus, or you can get in touch with me if you just Google um, Kevin Albany Pharmacy Health Sciences or... Africana Film, Albany, any of those things, you should get to either the web page for the film series or my own web page, and that will give you my email address. Best thing is to email me because then I can email you a uh, any anybody who wants a map which actually shows the location of it. But it is in the student center. And listeners, if you are intrigued and have not gone yet definitely get a map. The first time I went, I just circled around like crazy trying to find it. <laughs> so again, this is Professor Kevin Hickey talking about the last film in the 19th series that he, he runs on films of, of um, Africana uh, uh, film series. What a difference a day makes. This February 20th at 7 p.m. in the Student Center at Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. So good talking with you again, Kevin, and I'm looking forward to seeing you on Tuesday. Bria, always a pleasure. Looking forward to seeing you on Tuesday, and my best to everybody who's listening, and please come out. You will be happy um, that you did. That was Brea Barthel talking with Professor Kevin Hickey about the last film in the 19th annual Africana film series again if you are interested in the event, if you are interested, the event starts at 7 p.m. in the Student Center at the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Choi, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Choi. W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady, W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by sharing our content. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Barrio Alegria is a community engagement organization that utilizes the arts to create transformative that to create transformations in individuals to help them transform their communities. Two members of the group, Chris English and Ashley, continue last week's conversation about the transformative power of creative placemaking. Dun, 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 dun. 
Welcome. Um, we are in the beautiful, beautiful environment of the offices at the Sanctuary for Independent Media, sitting on the most comfortable futon in all of Troy, New York. My name is Chris. I work for Barrio Alegria, which is a nonprofit in Reading, PA. We came all the way up here from Southeast PA to come and talk to the Sanctuary for Independent Media and just learn a little bit of what it's like to engage with the community via media. I'm here with Fabiola from Barrio. Say hi. Hi. And um, what do you do at Barrio Alegria? So I am the lead fellow for our community building pillar. And so I get to oversee a lot of the programs like Adulting Sucks, Time Bank, and Micro Lending. Wonderful. That sounds like really great work. Um, I understand Barrio Alegria also does creative placemaking. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So creative placemaking is one of our pillars. Um, they have a whole bunch of programming. All of the programming involves transformative work for community members and also creating a space that is safe that brings in community brings in um that that spark that relationship that is needed for people to feel comfortable i love that and so i also understand that barrio specializes in overlapping of programs um and so they do a lot of events and just um, general placekeeping with a strong overlap between creative placemaking and community building. How do you see yourself being a part of that? Well, I can speak on community building. Um, for community building, we intertwine it with creative placemaking because we take, like for example, our program called Adulting Sucks. Adulting Sucks should be a boring um, financial literacy, things that people don't self-select into. As community building, we should be focusing on, you know, the aspect of bringing these people together, I guess, to create like a, a cohort that can come together and actually, you know, speak about it freely because they already have that community. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. But instead, we created that program to teach about finance on a personal level and on a, an emotional level, fulfilling the community building part. But on top of that, we teach these topics through art because art is a is something that is well known in any language. Um, and so we we tend to teach it creatively by putting dance. Um, putting activities in it and like sometimes we even make the environment that we are teaching in feel like a different like you're in a different place like for example one time we covered personality traits or personalities and spending and we went on this kind of quest where we made this environment feel more like a jungle more intimate and so we we changed the the space we were in to match it to what we were reflecting, I guess. 
That sounds super, super interesting. Um, you know, you kept mentioning this program called Adulting Sucks. Can you tell me a little bit more about um, how long that's been in the works, where this idea started? Is it in response to community need to talk about why adulting sucks? Um, can you tell me about a little bit of the the ideas behind it? Adulting Sucks, I believe, has been an idea of mine for perhaps I want to say two years. The main the main reason for it is to educate adolescents, young adults, and even adults, because at the end of the day, finance is something hard to grasp, and finance is something hard to understand and really feel confident. And so we wanted to instill knowledge, we wanted to instill confidence, and overall re-rate the way we have that relationship with money. Um, many times our parents try to help us, but ultimately do more harm than good. Sometimes they teach us things that instill fear in us, and then that translates into adulthood. Like for example, there's some parents that ultimately hate the bank and teach, well, you should be hiding money under your mattress. What happens to that money? That money is safer in a bank than a mattress because in a mattress, it can go missing. The material of money itself is not a good place to be stored. Like it can get damaged and so many things. And so we we like to dig into the emotions you currently have with your money. We've had many stories, like for example, a girl that only ate rice and beans because that's all her parents can afford to a point where she was saving up for a bike. Mind you, she was probably 10, if that. And all of a sudden she turns around, she gives her parents her savings. And she's like, mom, buy some chicken. I'm tired of eating rice and beans. And so those unexpected, I guess, stories is kind of what we love to do with Adulting Sucks. And on top of that, Adulting Sucks is overall teaching a topic that is supposed to be boring in a more engaging way. Because especially for our generation, um, I'm 21. I, I, I don't learn for myself, and I know for many other people who don't learn through just presentation and just listening anymore. Our way of learning is by doing conversations in so many other ways. Uh, you're right. It really is so important and such a big part of both community building and creative placemaking to engage the community that you're working with, to engage your target audience because they are the only reflections of whether or not the work you do is successful, really, if you're working for the community. Um, and so I want to know how you have seen change in your community through these collaborative efforts of both um, community building and creative placemaking. The change I've seen that has still shocked me to this day is through our micro-lending program. There, there is this man who came from, I think, Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico, but one of those. He immigrated here to the U.S. in his country. He was a doctor, but he settled here, opened up 
a cake making shop. He apparently he tried to go to a bank, couldn't, couldn't get a loan because he didn't have enough credit. And if they were going to give them a loan, they were going to give an out, outrageous interest rate. Mind you, this guy was a surgeon in his country. And so that, that shocked us, like, okay. When we started Adulting Sucks, we started um, going around, and he was one of the entrepreneurs that we asked, hey, what are barriers that you've seen while opening up your business? And he told us his whole story. A couple months after after we developed this program, we went back and was like, hey, we're ready to open up this program. Would you be interested in a loan? Would you be interested to be part of this program? He said he doesn't typically trust in banks, but he would trust us and he would take out a loan with us because he trusts Barrio Alegria. And so the thing is that because we already have concentrated ourselves so much in that community building, we've gotten through and started building relationships already with people. So we've earned, I guess, their trust. For creative placemaking, we, we, because we use that, I guess, that method, we kind of grow that trust that we already gotten from doing things over the years and just grow it because now we are making kind of like a safer environment for it to continue to grow. Um, it, it seems very evident that you guys are making real change in your community and that's absolutely amazing. Thank you for spending time with me um, and talking to me about how Barrio continues to um, integrate both community building and creative placekeeping in the work that they do. Uh, for more information on how Barrio continues to integrate um, community building and creative placekeeping, you can go to Barrio, B-A-R-R-I-O, Alegria, A-L-E-G-R-I-A. Com. That was another recording from Barrio Alegria as they visited the Sanctuary for Independent Media and recently recorded by Stephanie Nitka. If you, are lis- if you are interested in learning more about the history of indigenous people, listen up. Jonah Batman, executive director of Shaker, of Shaker Heritage Society, discusses a new four-session four reading group on land, liberty, and loss. That will focus on the Haudenosaunee presence and impact in what is New York State, and what is now New York State. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Frequent listeners will know that I love books. I do monthly interviews with uh, librarians from Troy Public Library. I talk with people from independent booksellers. And this time, I have a slightly different take on books. My guest today is Johanna Batman, yes, that's her real name, from Shaker Heritage Society, and she's here to tell us about an upcoming short-term book club that Shaker Heritage Society is running. Johanna, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Oh, thank you so much, Bria. I'm so glad to be here with you. And uh, full disclosure, I've taken part in two, possibly three reading clubs through 
through Shaker Heritage. I've been a longtime volunteer there, but I can personally attest the place is amazing to get to. We think of Shaker as architecture and furniture. The place has both of those, but it's so much more. So we're going to start off talking about the book club, and then we'll talk a little bit about Shakers. Just tell us a little bit about the structure of the club. Yeah, so this program is actually funded through Humanities New York, and they develop uh, book club themes. And the one that we've selected this round is called Land, Liberty, and Loss. And it's really looking at um, national history, but in particular with a focus on New York State history through the lens of Haudenosaunee history and conflict over Haudenosaunee land. And there's going to be four meetings with a book at each meeting. Can you preview what the books will be? Sure. We'll be starting with uh, Why You Can't Teach United States History Without American Indians, which is actually a compilation of essays by different authors. Our Beloved Kin, a History of King Philip's War, The Divided Ground, Indian Settlers and the Northern Borderland of the American Revolution, and finally, Conspiracy of Interests, Iroquois Dispossession and the Rise of New York State. And Sanctuary for Independent Media is on the unceded homelands of the Stockbridge-Munsee community, but Haudenosaunee did come pretty close to the Albany area, right? Yeah, before I moved to this region, I didn't really appreciate the extent to which this is kind of a borderland where you have multiple nations kind of converging, and I'm looking forward to learning more about that history through our facilitator. Tell us something about who will be facilitating each of the meetings. Yes, we're very excited uh, this round to work with Dr. Alana Krischer, uh, who is a graduate of University of Albany and is a scholar of Seneca history and the history of westward expansion in New York State and conflicts over traditional Seneca lands. So she's going to bring really deep, rich knowledge uh, from a scholarly angle to this club. And I'm really looking forward to learning from her. Now, Let's go back to that first book, Why You Can't Teach. Say that again. Why You Can't Teach United States History Without American Indians. So you can teach United States, but you can't really teach about sort of the, the predecessor to the United States. A lot of people living here before Europeans got here. And we tend to forget that there still are people whose roots go back a lot longer than any of us Euro-American roots. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, all all of us are at times guilty of kind of setting up a dichotomy of before and after. So, you know, there was before colonialism and after colonialism, and it's, you know, one chapter closed and the next one began, kind of ignoring the, the ways that uh, history is interwoven and that conflicts have defined who we are as a nation and who we are in New York State. And that, as you said, that that continues today, that those histories, those lineages, those stories are still very much living. But the the way that history of, of the United States is classically taught doesn't really acknowledge that in its full kind of richness and complexity. And this is the first time that I haven't heard of any of the books that are on the reading list, but I don't have to worry about finding them, tracking them down and buying them because you supply the books, right? 
Yeah, definitely. So through Humanities New York, they provide loan copies for sites. So I've actually put in my request. So when folks sign up, I can uh, provide them with a copy of the books uh, to to take home and and read on on your own, so that you can come prepared to learn and and discuss and debate during the session. That's one of the things I've loved about the groups is that there is discussion about the topics and people bringing in their own history or their own experience or their own knowledge or 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 background continuing with the logistics when are these meetings happening so we'll have our first session on march 6th and we'll have four um four books four sessions the first wednesday of each month at 6 p.m. okay and that's 6 p.m. at shaker heritage society give us a little idea of how to find it and where it is. Sure. Uh, we are actually located directly across the street from the Albany Airport. Uh, so that's that's our major landmark. Actually, the airport was built on historic Shaker lands, uh, but we convene in our meeting house. So this is the 1848 meeting house, which is really the heart of our property today. The full historic site is 26 acres, very beautiful, kind of pastoral little oasis in the middle of Wolf Road and the airport. Uh, but this uh, kind of meeting hall, which historically was a church, is is where we'll gather for our, our book discussions. And listeners, if you have not seen their meeting house, it is worth the trip just to see the architecture. Shakers are known for their architecture and furniture for good reasons, such simple designs. Their religion is reflected in the architecture, too. It was a, a Christian religious movement brought from England to uh, the North American continent in 1774. 1776 is when our site, the first Shaker settlement, was founded. And the Shakers came together under these uh, ideals and values of communalism, so all shared property, equality of race and gender. Um, you know, as early as the 1750s, 1760s, they were preaching this and practicing it pacifism, uh, and uh, they also embrace kind of sustainable practices. But their their lifestyle very much reflected their core values and, and their spiritual beliefs. So the buildings are all big to accommodate this communal society. They have uh, different stairwells, different doors to accommodate men and women because they adhere to a vow of celibacy. Even so, they raised many children in their community. They have adopted and indentured children as a way of sustaining themselves as a celibate community, um, but in fact were uh, known for their compassion and their care and a place where you could, uh, if you couldn't care for a child, know that they would be taken care of, fed three square meals a day and be be trained in meaningful work. So it was a pretty remarkable community in many, many ways and have had a lasting impact on our country through their invention and innovation, uh, as well as their beautiful design and architecture. And Johanna mentioned that they came here in 1774. So there's an important anniversary coming up. Yes, and that also fed into our decision to run this program this year. So Land, Liberty, and Loss is uh, in the midst of the celebrations of our 250th anniversary, kind of the parallel history that was playing out um, at the same time uh, and interwoven. So uh, the land that the Shakers settled on here, classically, we describe it as, you know, vacant. It was a tenant farmer belonged to the Van Rensselaers, you know, who leased it out to to folks who could pay. 
But that's kind of missing the the story of how did the Van Rensselaers come to own that land and who who came here before and the Shakers, so well known for their craft and design, inherited a lot of you know knowledge from people who came before and knew these lands, knew the medicinal herbs, knew the basket weaving techniques, and all of these things we associate with Shakers today have much deeper roots in other cultures that aren't always acknowledged. So that's one of the connections I'm looking to make. That's great. And again, it's four different books on the first Wednesday of each month at 6 p.m. from March to June. The first session is on March 6th. And how do people get the books? So you can sign up through our website, shakerheritage.org, and I will follow up with you. But folks also are welcome to reach out to me directly with questions or inquiries at director at shakerheritage.org. And your organization has the easiest telephone number to remember of any I've ever seen. It's 518-456-7890, and I'm extension one. Love that number. And that website again? Shakerheritage.org. That was Johanna Batman, Executive Director of Shaker Heritage Society. And I'm Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks a lot, Johanna. I'll see you on the 6th. Thank you, Bria. Thanks to Bria Barthel for bringing us another wonderful story. And this next story is from you, Jacob. Yes. So from... It's about from two years ago, back when I was in the trenches of Troy High School. Uh, you came to us as an intern. What a year, 2022. I've been here for two years now, crazy. Um, I talked to football coach, teacher, Matthew Marsh, about senior student athletes and his experience with being a teacher and a, being a, teacher and a coach. Uh, hope you enjoy. Hi, my name is Mr. Marsh. I teach economics and global 10 uh, here at Troy High School. I also coach varsity football and am the head coach of JV baseball. So we've done a few interviews about the athlete, the teacher, the coach. If you could describe to someone who doesn't know you, what is Mr. Marsh the person like? What do you like to do? Um, what do you describe your personality as? Uh, I, I like to think uh, I'm a I'm a pretty relaxed person. I'm, uh, I'm fairly easygoing. Uh, people who might know me on the football field might think otherwise, uh, but you know, off the off the field, I'm a. I really am. I'm a pretty relaxed, pretty even keel. I uh, I like to golf and kayak and you know, hang out and uh, watch movies and play with my dog and take my dog for walks. Uh, pretty typical, pretty easygoing as a person. Yeah, I do think that it is important for our listeners to sort of know a little bit more about the person before we get into, you know, the relationship that they have with the topic we're discussing. So what can you say the challenges were of coaching a senior athlete? Like, what was that like this year? Uh, you know, obviously, you know, seniors all want to go out um, with the best possible results. And we've had teams in the past here where the best possible result was winning a state championship. Um, this year, it obviously wasn't the case, uh, but it's all about trying to keep these kids motivated, uh, and especially the seniors. Um, it takes, it's, 
it became this year more about intrinsic motivation where the athletes were playing for themselves. Uh, they were playing for the pride of their school. Uh, they were playing for their teammates uh, instead of an outward title, um, which wasn't going to come this year. Uh, so that was probably, this year especially, was probably one of the more challenging years in terms of trying to make sure that the kids stayed motivated throughout the year. Motivation is a huge thing when it comes to seniors. Everyone knows what the senioritis thing is. People, seniors tend to, you know, lose motivation because it's their last year. What are some things you do to sort of keep your seniors, like, into the game and motivated to be at their best? I think uh, it's something that we talk about is, uh, you know, when you look back in 15, 20 years, what are you going to remember? Uh, are you going to remember blowing off practice or not giving your all in the final game of the year? Or are you going to remember, you know, laying it all out there on the line for your teammates, for your school, and mostly for your own pride? Working hard on the football field uh, is something that, uh, the kids can look back on when they're struggling in real life. I mean, seniors are going to be out in the real world, whether it's college or into a career in the next you know, few months. And, you know, they have to be able to, you know, sometimes it helps to remember the struggles that they went through that senior year of football uh, when they're going through something in the real world. And, you know, if they can make it through some of the difficulties that they've had, uh, and they can take adversity, and they can turn it into something positive, then hopefully out there in the real world, you know, that can translate. What is it like, you know, having, you know, a kid that you have on your team, but also teaching him? Is it different? Do you come at it a different way? Is it sort of easier because you know the kid? Is it easier to get to him? How is that relationship kind of work in the classroom? I find that it gives me just a, another way to, to communicate with it with a kid um like you said i'm a i'm a different teacher than i am even a coach um as a teacher again i i like to think i'm you know fairly easygoing you know i like to talk to the kids and communicate and have open forms of discussion and i think that allows the kids to see that i'm not just a coach i'm a teacher I can be a mentor. I can be somebody that they can talk to. I think it just opens up more avenues to be able to communicate with kids. And to be honest with you, I've found that the, some of the best results or best relationships I build with kids are kids that I've actually had in my classroom as well. What is the difference between, you know, building a relationship with a student on the field to, you know, building a relationship in the classroom? Uh, so... To, to, I guess to answer your question, um, they kind of go, to me, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, I think building a relationship in the classroom helps to build a relationship on the field and vice versa. I think building a relationship on the field and then the next year I have them in class, it sets a, you know, maybe an expectation for them to come to class on time, be prepared and you know, work hard in the class because uh, we've had that outside relationship. I think having that, that dual relationship with the students helps to build a level of trust and understanding where they understand that they 
there are certain expectations in the classroom, just like there's certain expectations on the field. You know, we hear so many times that a kid may be performing extremely well in the field, but then when they get in the classroom, they kind of aren't there or not present, whether, you know, it's mentally or physically. Um, when you have the relationship with the kid outside of the classroom on the football field, uh, you may have a stronger connection and it may yield better success in the classroom. Not everyone's a, you know, an athlete, but everyone's been a classmate. So I think it's great to hear from a teacher on a little insight of how they build relationships with you know, their kids in the classroom. Obviously, Troy High is a football school. We have basketball. We have a multitude of other sports. But we're a football school. When people think of Troy High, they think of football because we've been so successful. Um, so you've coached on the football team, so you coached this year, so you definitely have a, a different experience, maybe a more enhanced experience because, like I said, we are a football school. We take pride in football. We've, the seniors played basically all their last games wherever they're going to play, home, away. But what was that last game like on the Troy High Field? Uh, the last game this, this previous year, um, it, it was disappointing uh, because we did lose. Uh, but it also made me realize uh, how much care and effort needs to be put into this program every day. Uh, I can tell you that I have worked and myself and Coach Stack, who's going to be the head coach, and Mr. Robinson have worked harder this offseason to make sure that we don't have to go through the feeling again of watching our seniors walk off of our own field disappointed. Uh, it's honestly given us a new fire. I mean, I've been coaching here for eight years now, going on nine, and it's always been a, our coaching staff has been extremely strong. I was always one of the younger guys on the staff, and I kind of didn't really see or appreciate the work that went into it every day. Uh, but now with this year, I've seen that it takes, you know, a lot of effort, a lot of work to really build something. And I think it gives, it's going to, give, going to give me a greater appreciation for the product that we put out in the field in the fall. I think that it makes me really excited to just watch the kids grow and get better and stronger and faster and understand the concepts that we're trying to do on the field. And it does, it makes me hopeful for what's going to come this year. Walking off the field last year after losing that last game, after watching the product that we put out in the field all year, uh, made me appreciate that football is not something that comes easy, like life. You know, you have to work hard at it every single day. The more time you put into it, the more, the more you get out of it. And that was my co-host Jacob Boston's piece from back in your... Um, was it two years ago when you were a high schooler? Yep. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Jacob Austin. We thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. It really does take a village. Thanks to Bria Barthel, Moses Nagel, and Stephanie... Stephanie... Nitka. Nitka. Thank you for... Or, well, thank you for listening making this whole thing worthwhile. Thank you for listening to us, and we'll see you next time. We will hear you next time. Hear you next time. <laughs>